Who here has heard of the Mount of Olives? I don't think anybody who's a Christian has not heard of the Mount of Olives. The, the, the Mount of Olives is um, opposite the Temple Mount. We actually went there when we went to Israel a few years ago and it was a tremendous experience to stand on this mount where all these olive trees are. And uh, I didn't know until a couple of days ago as I was preparing for this message that um, to the Jewish people it also has another name. It's called the Mount of Anointing. Because olive trees that lined its slopes were used to produce the olive oil that anointed kings up to 3,000 years ago. When Samuel tipped that horn of anointing oil over David's head, that oil probably came from the Mount of Olives. And at the foot of the Mount of Olives is a small garden called Gethsemane. Everybody's heard of the Garden of Gethsemane, right? It's where Jesus spent his final hours before his arrest. And Gethsemane is an Aramaic name which means oil press. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about um, David and his prophetic proclamation that he was a green olive tree in the house of the Lord. I want to talk a little bit today about what happens to the fruit of the olive tree before the oil is produced. Olive oil can only be produced under immense pressure. And at the time of Jesus, the process was like this. The olives were put into a circular stone pit with a millstone on the pit that weighed about 500 kilograms. So if you imagine a a pit like this and there was a huge millstone uh, placed in the perimeter of that, and then they would connect an, oxen to that, uh, an ox to that millstone, tether it to him. And as the ox circled the pit, the weight of that 500 kilogram millstone crushed the olives, the skin, the fruit, the seed. Everything was absolutely crushed until only pulp is left. So out of these, you've all seen olives, they're kind of hard, small, berry-shaped things. These are crushed completely until only his pulp is left. And then the crushed olive pulp was then put into these porous woven containers in the olive press. And they were porous so that the oil could seep out. And then the pressure was applied to the press um, somewhere between one and a half and four tons of pressure were applied uh, to the olive pulp to produce that pure olive oil which dripped out into a vat below. And this was done three times. The first pressing produced the purest, finest oil used to anoint kings, priests and prophets, used to consecrate items in the temple. In the second pressing, again, that same incredible incredible pressure, one and a half to four tons of pressure applied to this pulp was applied to the olives and so more oil was produced and this oil was used for food, was used for medicine and was used for cosmetics. In the third pressing, one more extraction occurred and this oil was used for lamps and it was used for soap. 
And when they finished this process, even the leftover residue did not go to waste because it was put back into the olive, draw, into the olive grove to enrich the soil. And so when you think about this and you think about uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, which was named after an olive press at some point, whether it was at Jesus' time or not, there was an olive press in that place where Jesus came to spend his final hours before the cross. And it's no coincidence that when Jesus sought a place to pray in that final preparation that he made that choice. He chose Gethsemane. He chose it. As with everything he said and did, this was something that held a prophetic weight because he knew what was about to unfold. But I don't believe that in his humanity he could fully appreciate what was about to be unleashed upon him until it actually started to happen. He took his three closest friends with him, Peter, James and John, and the story is told in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke, and today we're going to go to Mark's account to see what happened. In Mark 14, starting at verse 32, the Bible says, Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. This is Jesus. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. They had been commissioned to do something specific by the one they called their Lord and Master. And now came the crushing weight the pressure that only Jesus of all human beings that have ever been born or ever will be born, the, this is this crushing weight, this pressure, Jesus is the only person who has ever borne it. Because it's not just something in the physical realm, it's everything of the spiritual realm as well. In verse 35, it says, He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. This is the cup of suffering that he has been asked to drink from for all humanity. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The cup he spoke of was a cup of suffering such as no one has ever known before or since. You will never go through even the tiniest percentage of what Jesus went through in this particular season of his time. But in the asking... He was acknowledging the impossibility in his own strength alone to bear what lay before him. And he was asking for it to be taken because in his humanity he knew it was impossible. But beyond that, he was submitting himself to his father's will because he knew what lay beyond even the suffering that he went through, the emotional and spiritual torment that he felt in that moment. And Luke's account tells us that in response, the father sent Jesus an angel 
who strengthened him in his ordeal. It goes on to say in verse 37 that he came and found them sleeping. He returned back to his three friends who had been commissioned to watch and to pray and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? (laughs) Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And the second time is just as unbearable as the first. But now added to his pain is the unwillingness of his closest disciples to bear him up in prayer, even for a single hour at the time of his greatest need. And so he comes back to them again, verse 40. When he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. I wouldn't have known what to say either. Imagine their shame in their abandonment of him in his visible distress. But let me point out that they weren't just looking at emotion on his face. Luke, who was a physician, and his description of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane gives us an extra detail in the account of Jesus' suffering when he tells us of this particular aspect. In Luke 22, verse 44, it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Take that as something you need. When you are in agony, whether it be physical, emotional or spiritual, pray earnestly. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And so there he is. And I imagine he has his mantle on, his robe on. It's probably white. And he comes back to find his disciples sleeping. And not only is their distress visible upon his face because of the agony uh, in contorting his features, but now there is blood dripping down his face and staining his robes. And the disciples come up out of their groggy, groggy sleep to their shame and humiliation. Who knows what forces of evil or perhaps simply just their own flesh kept Peter, James and John from prayer even after looking at the blood on Jesus' face and staining his robe and even after seeing this, yet they returned to sleep. This is a battle in the spiritual realm of all the ages. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. 
Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And there is something profound that is happening here that I want you to see. It was the time, I believe, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in his greatest agony, where he's saying, God, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, if that's not possible, I submit myself to your will. It's this time spent in prayer that so prepared Jesus for the ordeal of the cross. We know that Jesus asked the disciples, could you not spend one hour? But the time Jesus himself spent in that garden, in that period of time, most Bible scholars say it's more like three hours. There he is in this agony where all of his human flesh is crying out for release from the ordeal that he knows is coming. And yet somewhere in his spirit, man, as he prays, something rises up of strength and of victory and of purpose for you and I. What was the fruit of this agony of prayer? I saw something this week. It was this, that he did not wait passively for Judas the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and the soldiers leading a multitude against him, his response was this. The, first time he, the third time he came back to his three disciples lying there asleep, he said, rise, let us be going. He went of his own accord to the place where they would find him. It was his decision. Jesus was never a victim. Three times Jesus experienced the crushing in the olive press. Do you see that? When they extracted the oil from the olives, they had three pressings. Three times Jesus went in that agony of prayer to the Father. And an anointing was produced sufficient to carry him through to the end of what he suffered for you and I. He did not wait passively for what he knew had to happen. He rose, he set his face like flint as he had been doing for weeks up to this moment and strode to the place where Judas would find him. Everything he had ministered in, every healing, every deliverance, every restored broken life, Every understanding and revelation he had preached of who he was and what he had come to do could not come to its fullness without his death and his taking of all the sin of the entire world upon himself. You know, I was preparing this and I was going, God, this is a heavy message. There is nothing light about what I'm preaching today. But when the Holy Spirit moves in response to your response to the word, you will walk out of here lighter than you came in. Because God wants to do something profound in us. 
He wants to impart something to us that will not only give us the strength to endure whatever it is we have to endure, but give us the strength to rise of our own volition and walk into the challenges that we face. Hell was closing in and Jesus persevered in prayer and he prevailed. He won the victory over the flesh. Three times he returned to his closest disciples, Peter, James and John. Jesus persevered in prayer and prevailed. The disciples did not. And despite all their bluster and bravado, they all failed Jesus in his hour of greatest need. These are the men who swore, oh, we'll never leave you. But not only did they sleep through his crushing, they all betrayed him running away in his hour of greatest need and only the disciple John is recorded as standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus actually completed the price being paid for everything you and I have ever done or will do that, is, that separates us from God. Two or three times in the last month of preaching or so, I have included what Jesus declared publicly when he started his ministry in my sermons. That beautiful scripture in Isaiah 61.1, it doesn't just speak of what Jesus would do, but speaks of what we would become. When he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Who was bound here before Jesus? To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I have walked into all those things in my life because of what Jesus did for me. A beautiful proclamation that we might become trees of righteousness the planting of the lord that he may be glorified and we are here today in this church as the trees of righteousness spoken of in this scripture nearly three thousand years ago the prophet isaiah spoke about you three thousand years ago and you're here because jesus took up the mantle that was designed only for him and him alone and walked it out in its fullness this beautiful, victorious proclamation of the Messiah that Jesus made could only be fulfilled completely one way and one way only. A new covenant had to be forged between God and man. And it could only be the blood of Jesus the Messiah that sealed the covenant for eternity. He had to die and he had to rise. When Jesus publicly declared these verses from Isaiah 61, when he publicly declared himself as the Messiah, he also knew that there was only one path that he could take in order for him to fulfill his ministry, the cross. And even before he went there, he gave us that message. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. He knew where that led. 
And as I thought about this, I thought about how the same prophet Isaiah gave us the portion of prophetic scripture that best describes what Jesus endured on the cross. See, we read the gospel accounts, and I thought about going to the gospel accounts of Jesus on the cross and before Pilate and before Herod and all the prophetic uh, fulfillments that lie in those descriptions. But I felt like God just kept taking me back to Isaiah 53 and the richness of what is prophesied by the same prophet who said that the Spirit of the Lord is upon this man. The same man is described in Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, 1-6, he says, Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's not saying here that Jesus was not a good looking man. He is so, he's pointing forward prophetically to Jesus on the cross, cross after being spat on, spat in his face. When the, when the soldiers, the Roman garrison humiliated him, what they actually did was they put a sack over his head so that he could not hear where the blows were coming from and each soldier would come running up and punch him as hard as he could in the face. And they did that repeatedly, 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 repeatedly until you could not recognise him anymore. And here Isaiah, 2,800 years before it had happened, prophesies exactly the nature of Jesus' death. But more importantly, he prophesies the results of it, the fruit of it, the anointing that is released. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. You know, for so much of the world today, nothing has changed. There is no name as despised across the face of the earth as the name of Jesus Christ. Nobody curses in the name of Buddha. Nobody curses in the name of Muhammad. Nobody curses in the name of any of the, of the founders of the world's religions. They only curse the name of Jesus. I've sat in a hotel room where, um, in a very conservative nation where uh, they would cut out all the profanity in the movie that we were watching, which is probably a good thing. We should have been self-censoring. But the one thing that they didn't remove was when people cursed using the name of Jesus. The most despised name and yet the most revered. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The reason I'm preaching from this instead of one of the gospel accounts is because when you look into the meanings of the very carefully, exquisitely chosen words that the prophet Isaiah used, we see this. In our griefs and sorrows are covered every malady, every anxiety, every calamity, every disease, every grief, every sickness, every sorrow, every anguish, every affliction and every pain that you or I will ever know in this life has already been born for us on the cross by Jesus. 
Surely he has borne our maladies, anxieties, calamities, diseases, griefs, sicknesses, sorrows, anguish, affliction and pain. He's taken it all. Then he goes on to say, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Afflicted. Everybody turned away from him. And then he goes into this beautiful verse that says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded. What does that mean? Not just that he was physically wounded, but that he was defiled. That he was made profane. The holy became unholy so that we could become sons. He was wounded, defiled, made profane, polluted, broken. He was bruised. That word for bruised is the same one that they used to describe the crushing of the olive press. He was bruised. He was oppressed. He was crushed. He was destroyed. He was struck down. Why? For our transgressions and iniquities. What does that mean? Our revolt, our rebellion, our sin, our trespasses, our transgressions, our perversity, our depravity, our guilt, our moral evil, our fault line, and the totality of our sin. The prophet Isaiah goes on to say, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. The punishment that you and I fully deserved for everything that has separated us from God, the punishment for that, not just you and I here in this church, but the billions of people across all history. Have you ever felt ashamed? Have you ever felt guilty? Have you ever felt like the burden of sin on your shoulders was too much for you to bear? Multiply that by every single man, woman and child that has ever walked the face of the earth and ever will. And you start to get an inkling of the crushing that Jesus went through. The punishment that we fully deserved fell on him and it's had a reason. The chastisement for what purpose? For our peace. All of this, despite all the things that I described before. The sicknesses, the sin, the iniquity, the transgressions, our inability to save ourselves, all of this fell upon him so that we might have his shalom, peace, so that he might make a promise to us that we can have safety and welfare and health and prosperity and peace and rest. More profound still is the fact that he went through all of this while people were crying out, crucify him. 
He didn't do it because people said to him, Jesus, will you pay the price for my sin? No. He did it in the face of complete and utter rejection. And even his closest friends ran from the conflict. And then one of the greatest statements in the word of God, Isaiah says at the end of verse 5, and by his stripes we are healed. And that statement embraces your past, your present and your future. That in the name of Jesus lies the shalom of God and lies the healing that he has promised us. Verse 6 says that all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Everything that we deserve because of all our wrongdoing, all our sinfulness has been given to Jesus. Further on in verse 10, Isaiah says this, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Again, the word means to crush as in an olive press. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see his seed. What does that mean? It means that Jesus will see the fruit of what he died for. And you're it. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We are gathered here together as his seed. You know that scripture that says a seed has to go down into the ground and then it bears much fruit? You are the fruit of Jesus' suffering. And we, because of what? Jesus did for us, and now the pleasure of the Lord. What astounds me is that throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus, he was perfectly aware of how it must reach its fulfillment. And he spoke constantly in ways that would only be understood after his death, burial, and resurrection. Last Sunday, for those who celebrate this in particular, was Palm Sunday when thousands laid down palm fronds before Jesus, hailing his victorious entry into Jerusalem. Only a week before Jesus was crucified, he was there getting the adulation of the masses. Was his head turned? No. His face was set like flint for what he knew he needed to do. Because right after this, the word of God tells us in the book of John that right after his victorious entry into Jerusalem, there were people who approached the disciples because they wanted to meet with him. Oh, we want to meet this guy who's the Messiah. We want to come and make plans with him, maybe for the future of the glory of Israel and all those sorts of things that nobody had a clue about. But he refused because 
in all the proclaiming of him as the Messiah, for all the laying down of palm fronds, Jesus' eyes were already on Calvary. And this is what he said. This is just after he comes in and they're laying down the palm fronds and people want to meet with him. People want to adulate him. People want to do all sorts of things. This is what he said. John 12, 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. That all sounds good, doesn't it? Oh, yes, we've just declared him as the Messiah. He's going to be glorified. Then he goes on to say, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And they must be going, what is he talking about? Then he goes on to say, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. That place always includes the cross. Does it not? If anyone serves me, him my father will honour. And then he gathered his disciples together one last time for one last meal together. And this is the moment that he instructed them and us to celebrate communion together. This is when he instituted what we still celebrate today more than 2,000 years later. If I could just get those serving us with the elements of communion, begin to distribute those elements. See, there's a, a beautiful truth around the enormity of what Jesus has done. That truth is that everything you need now in this hour is available to you because of what Jesus went through for you. Not only did he suffer on your behalf to pay the price for your sin, but he suffered so that you could walk in a newness of life once born again. And out of his suffering, the eternal promise is made to us of healing, of deliverance, of restoration, of prosperity even. When I got born again, I was satisfied that somebody paid the price for my sin. That was enough for me. The burden of my sin and my shame was so immense that I was as close to suicide as makes no difference. But in one encounter with Jesus, everything got turned upside down. And then when I began to dig into the Word of God and began, began to understand the enormity of what Jesus had done for me, 
I began to understand that I was not to be perpetually at the foot of the cross begging for forgiveness of my sins, but that I had become a new creation in him and that the enormity of the work of the cross that was available to me meant that I could walk free of my past. Absolutely free of my past because he paid the price. That hell could no longer hold me. That sin could no longer have dominion over me because this beautiful law of grace had come and been applied to my life. And I didn't have to walk with my head bowed in shame anymore. I could walk in sonship if only I could get hold of the enormity of the promises God has made to us through this incredible event that we are celebrating today. Everything you need now in this hour is available to you here today because of what Jesus went through for you. Are there areas of your life that you need to consecrate to him? The anointing is here for that. His crushing produced the anointing that breaks yokes. Do you need healing? Do you need sustenance? Is it difficult for you to see beauty around you? Have you walked in darkness for so long that you can no no longer see the beauty that God has created around you? Is there darkness within you that needs to go? Perhaps you need cleansing from something that has held you captive even in your Christian walk. The anointing is here for that. Jesus was crushed so you could go free. The price has already been paid for you to walk in perfect shalom. There are some specific things that the Lord wants to do when we take communion together. But what he wants to do in this service is not restricted to the things that he's already spoken to me about. Because I believe even now, as we contemplate the severity of the punishment that Jesus undertook, the distractions have been kind of stripped away under the preaching of the Lord. And now what rises to the surface in our hearts are the areas where The invitation is there from the Holy Spirit to say, God, this is what I need. Let's take the, you should already have the bread in hand. Has everybody got their communion elements? Matthew 26 26 to 30. Jesus and the disciples are at the Last Supper. They're about to walk out to the Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane. It says this, this is the last thing that Jesus did in the Last Supper. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. In the sacrifice 
of his body and in now taking this piece of bread as an emblem of his brokenness, we need to understand that his brokenness means our healing. Let's take the bread together. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. They wouldn't understand this until after the resurrection. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Your sins have been paid for. Just receive that as we take the cup together. Verse 30, very next verse, he says, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus knew where he was going. He knew he was going to Gethsemane. He knew he was going to be crushed. He knew everything that was going to follow. He did it anyway because he loves you and he loves me. The other morning... Well, the other night, <clears throat> I started preparing a message and I, there was like a couple of different ways I felt like I could go with this message. And then the next morning, I woke up and as I was getting out of bed, I had a vision. And in this vision, which is any description I would give would be inadequate, Jesus was walking through the rooms of my heart. And as he did so, I was aware of a couple of things. The first one was that there were rooms in my heart that I kind of had nudged shut as he came along because I didn't really want him to look in there. The second thing I realized was that whether I wanted him to or not, Jesus saw what was in those rooms. And in response to the word this morning, as you receive by faith, there are some things that God wants to do among us. I want to do something a little unusual with our worship to close with. Can I just have Michael, Sella and Sarah up, please? And in a few moments, we're going to go into 
some quiet worship where we just focus in on Jesus. If you guys could get Heart of Worship ready, please. And early this morning, um, I was asking the Lord about what he wanted to do today. Um, Lucas, can you keep an eye on the um, responses from YouTube in case somebody responds on YouTube? So I have a, a couple of specific words of knowledge that God wants to deal with this morning, areas of healing. It may be for one or more of you here, maybe for somebody on live stream. And God just gives me these words and I, just, I, I release them in the expectation that God is going to move in healing in response. And so there's somebody, whether it's here in the room or on live stream, and you're suffering from gout. Is there anybody here in the room that is suffering from gout? If there's nobody here in the room, it will definitely be somebody on live stream and there's somebody here or on live stream you have a problem with your esophagus if there's somebody here that's got a problem with their esophagus can you just acknowledge it can you stand up please sister can you stand up please anybody else got a problem with their esophagus now before we deal with that I want to speak to the person on live stream who has a problem with gout um, I'll just give you what the Lord just gave me then. The Lord is going to heal you now. You need to change your diet. The Lord is going to heal you now, but you need to change your diet. So in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I declare to this uh, infirmity that its assignment is finished now, today, right now. In the name of Jesus Christ, I cancel the assignment of the spirit of infirmity that is manifesting as gout, I declare that you shall walk pain-free. I declare that the pain is leaving your body right now in Jesus' name and it shall not return. I also declare over you that God is putting the moral fortitude in you, the determination in you, that you will make the necessary changes so that this thing cannot come back because of any natural reason. So we thank you, Father God, for what you're doing right now with that problem in Jesus' name. Now, everybody here in this church, I want you to turn around and stretch your hands out to Antoinette and also to Linda. And we are dealing with a problem with the esophagus here. Is there somebody else? Have you got a problem with your esophagus, Mary? So three. Anybody else? Anybody else got a problem with their esophagus? Okay, just stretch your hands out. And this is not some weird Pentecostal ritual. What you are actually doing is you are releasing authority in the name of the King of Kings into these conditions. The problems with the esophagus. In the name of Jesus, I declare that the esophagus comes back to its normal proportion, position, proportion and position. I declare that anything that has compromised the uh, operation, the right operation of that esophagus, that it's coming back into right order right now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, I declare that the healing is being released. I thank you, Lord, that the fire of your Holy Spirit is going into each of these three esophagi. I think the plural would probably be. Into each esophagus, Lord, I declare your healing power is now being released. 
In Jesus' name, I declare you healed. By his stripes, you are healed. Amen, church.